Good morning, Gateway. Well, for those who may not know me, my name is Dean Salami. I'm just one of the several fellas here that helped to serve and uh, move with the church. Uh, this topic today, this conversation that we're going to have, I've been uh, praying about this for quite some time. I pray that it will bless you uh, because Jesus and, I, Jesus and I have discussed this enough that, uh, well, you know what? Let's pray so you can hear what he has to say. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to get together. We are reminded, Father, that this great privilege is not uh, to be scoffed at. Our brothers and sisters around the world don't have this same privilege. And so let us not take this lightly. The rising of the sun, the setting of the same is a testament to your faithfulness, Lord God, as is the ability to get together and gather each week here. Each heart here, Lord God, is waiting to hear from you. And I know that there's someone or some people here today that need to hear this message. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you do not allow me to impede anything that you would have to say to these hearts. Lord Jesus, we will see you at work today in fine fashion. And boy, when you work, Lord God, and we're able to see it, it's a beautiful thing. So with that in mind, Lord God, I ask that you empower this, your servant. Empower me to be able to communicate effectively, that I might bring glory to your great name and do good for those that are gathered here today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a few months ago, I was given a great gift, a zero-point riding lawnmower. I've always dreamed of having a riding lawnmower, but a zero-point, hey, that's like the top of the line now, right? So a dear friend who actually goes to this church donated one to me. Took it to the shop to get, main, uh, get some service done, and I put it in my garage waiting for the day where I can get out there and enjoy it. So that day came just a couple of weeks ago when we were having some good weather. So after my day of work, I said, you know what, before my wife comes home, I'm going to take this thing out for a spin. So I took it out back, and oh boy, can this thing go. I was zipping back and forth on my lawn. Uh, man, it was like it was a Formula One race car. I was having a good old time. My wife comes home, and so I drive up, and she sees me grinning ear to ear. She says, how's it feel? Oh, man, this thing is great. This thing is so fast. And she said, how is it cut? Like, cut? Yeah, you know, it's a lawnmower, right? So, oh, yeah, uh, I'll go back and try that. So, it's, it cuts just as well as it goes fast, so it's a good thing. This thing cut through my grass like a hot knife through butter. And in the open, this thing is sweet. Around the house, it requires a little bit more finesse. You know where this is going, right? So my back staircase, I'm trying to maneuver, and I misjudged a turn just a little. And wham, I knocked into this thing, blew the whole chute off of this machine. I said, gosh, I just got this thing. And I destroyed it already. So I picked up what seemed to be the wreckage, and I pulled the mower around front, and upon closer examination, I actually didn't break it. That thing was held on by powerful magnets. So I was able to take it, plop it back on, check to make sure everything was working, I was back in business. 
awesome, right? Wouldn't it be nice if life was like that? If you make a mistake, you mess up, screw up royally, and all you had to do was plop something back on and you're back to, the, back to business? Well, we know that life is a little bit more complicated than that, don't we? And that came to a reality for me a few years ago when I was leading some of my guys through a Bible study. Now, I love those Bible studies because God really speaks to me to really be able to reach those guys' hearts. Um, but this one lesson that I was preparing, God, uh, I said, man, I know this is for them. And God said to me that before they get this lesson, there's one step they're going to need to take. Okay, so what I did was prepare my lesson, and the day we got together, I had everything prepped. Took them through the steps that I needed to, and I knew that I had to share something about myself with them, something they did not know about about my past, and I did. And then one by one, each of them began to share something about their past, things that they never told anyone before. And then the last one to share before he got through, he asked, how do I get past the things that I've done? I wonder how many of us are asking that same question today. We are in week four of our Finding Jesus series. First week, we went beyond competing priorities. Then Ed led us through beyond our stuff. If you remember last week, he talked about our busyness. Today, we're going to talk about getting beyond our past. And what we're going to do is enlist the help of one of Jesus' best friends, the Apostle John. And he's going to walk us through. So let me rephrase the question for us to fit the theme of this series. How does finding Jesus move us beyond our past? Let's look to... John 4, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. We're going to start at chapter, chapter 4 and verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given his, sons, his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Will you give, when a Samaritan woman came to draw, uh, draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was or who it is that asks you for a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Now, the Lord is on his way from Judea to Galilee. He decides that the most direct route, which is through Samaria, and the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, I'm sorry, the Jews and the Samaritans, were marked by deep animosity. The Samaritans were looked down upon because they were considered half-breeds. The Jews were seen as arrogant and self-righteous. Speaking to women in public was generally taboo, but the Jews had a particular loathing for Samaritan women. If you associated with any Samaritan, you would be considered basically ceremonially unclean. And Jesus purposefully 
enters the fray by asking this unnamed Samaritan woman for a drink. You can imagine her surprise, right? She asks a question of her own because she's shocked that a Jewish man would stoop to asking her for a drink, consider how loathsome Samaritans were, and in particular women. I love the way Jesus answers her. He's so brilliant. Notice, he actually reframes the conversation. He does not allow himself to get caught up in a centuries-long feud. Instead, he elevates the conversation to a higher level, and he makes himself the the focal point because he indeed is the gift of God. But he's also offering something to her. He's both ready and willing to give her this gift. And if she had known this, she would have already asked him for this living water. Now, Jesus is using that term living water very strategically. It is a term that is used in various Old Testament texts. We find it mostly in the prophetic writings of uh, where God is calling his people back to himself, even though they have been rebellious. I want us to take a look at just two verses for a sample. Jeremiah 2.13 and Isaiah 55.1. Jeremiah says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Isaiah says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Notice the Jeremiah text. It shows God has, um, God's people have committed two sins. They've forsaken him, who is that spring of living water, and they've forged their own paths, paths that have left them thirsty. The Isaiah quote shows God extending an offer to restore them at his own cost. And this is exactly what is going on here in our text. Jesus is doing the same thing with this woman. We need to make a very important observation. The reason he doesn't even bother with the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans is that they both have forsaken God. And while the Jews somehow thought that the Samaritans were less than, they themselves were no better. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world That includes the Samaritans, and in particular, this Samaritan woman. So let me um, use some different words for you, especially as it relates to us today who may be dealing with some shame from our past. Your past does not disqualify you from the grace of God, regardless of what anybody says or even what you think. Let me say that again. Your past does not disqualify you from the grace of God, no matter what anybody says or even what you may think. That was my friend's problem. He shared with us that he had treated his wife very badly. He wasn't physically abusive, but everything he did, it hurt her terribly, and he knew it. He wanted to know how he could get beyond that. So I was able to ask two important questions to help me see where he really where he was and what he needed. So I asked, number one, does your wife bring it up? His answer, no, not once. 
I said, okay, does she treat you with any contempt? No. Quite the opposite. For some reason, she still loves me. I just, I don't get it. So you knew what I was dealing with now. Guilt and shame. Somehow he thought that his past was so bad that he would not be able to recover. For any of you who are present today that suffer from the same guilt and shame my friend did, let me say to you what I said to him. Because of what Jesus did, you are good. And what he offers will move you beyond your past. But the question is, will you accept it? Let's see what this Samaritan woman does. In verses 11 to 15, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Now, I love her response because the first part of it, she she shows that she is just as clueless as Nicodemus was. In chapter 3, we see John writing about Nicodemus, and then just then, like then, here, once again, Jesus is using terminology that they both get, but the meaning behind it is not the same. Jesus, once again, uses a phrase, living water, which he means to refer to God, and then later on, John will tell us that it literally refers to the Holy Spirit, but the woman is thinking of literal water. And since she is thinking of literal water, she sees no bucket in Jesus' hands and wants to know where he is going to get this water he is referring to. And then she asks him a question that I think is hilarious. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and used it to sustain himself and his family? John is clearly using irony here because in chapter 1, he makes clear who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. So is he greater than Jacob? Uh, yeah, I'd say so, right? But because she was looking for a pail in his hands to draw out this living water, she missed the power of his eyes that could see into the empty well of her soul, which is where he wanted to deposit this water. So in brilliant fashion, Jesus responds to her once again, and once again reframes the conversation. He does not answer the question of whether or not he's greater than Jacob. He simply makes statements to show that what Jacob has is not satisfying, and it can never be satisfying. She knows it. We know it too. Anything that we do apart from Jesus to try and satisfy that ache in our soul Because of our past, it doesn't satisfy. How about isolation? Because we think that our past is too sordid for people to really understand. Maybe alcohol, sex, pornography, fill in the blank. None of it satisfies, and we know it. 
All that does is keep us from finding Jesus. But instead, Jesus offers a spring, water, a spring of water that wells up into eternal life. Now, eternal life is not meant for us to think living forever. Jesus defines eternal life as knowing God and in him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. She does not want to thirst anymore. Her, her response to Jesus is different this, this time around. She doesn't want to thirst, but the reason she gives shows she is still tying water. I mean, what Jesus, offer, what is Jesus is offering to literal water. Now look at what Jesus does next. In verses 16 to 18, he says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you have, what you have just said is quite true. Now she wants, she says she wants what Jesus is offering but she wants it on her terms. But he cares for her way too much to make that deal. Now, Jesus gets real. Let's camp out here just for a second. Pay careful attention to how Jesus handles her. If you really want what I am offering, let's talk about your past. So Jesus asked her to go and get her husband. Immediately she says, I have no husband. And then Jesus reveals just how intimately he knows her. Exactly. You are right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you're with now is not your own. You are exactly right. Now, one of the ways John describes Jesus in chapter 1 is, is being full of grace and truth. And that simply means that Jesus is full of unending love, but yet he's going to tell it as it is. Grace and truth. So he realizes her situation. You have had five husbands, and the man that you're with, not your own. But he stops. He doesn't weaponize the truth against her. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't judge her. Why? Because that is not why he came. John 3.17 tells us that he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why do I bring this up? Because if you're familiar with this passage, this woman is usually described as having a sinful life. She is generally accused of being sexually promiscuous, and Jesus is outing her to reveal her sin. Now, while that is possible, I don't believe that there's enough evidence in the text to lead us to that conclusion. We really don't know the details of her past. All we do know is that she was married five times, and the man she is with now is not her husband. And that's it. But there are at least two other possibilities of what's going on with her. First, all five of her husbands could have died. Second, each of her previous husbands could have divorced her. In either case, imagine this woman's plight for a second. In the first century, women were not highly thought of. Even if you were married, both the Jews and the Samaritans could divorce their wives for anything at all. And an unmarried woman 
was a vulnerable woman. And, but it was not uncommon for divorced women to enter into agreements with influential men to provide for them and protect them in exchange for the possibility of a future marriage. So, maybe this is what Jesus is poking at. Her deep longing for significance. Now, if that's the case, the story changes a little. Because then, she reminds me of Leah, Jacob's wife. Let's turn to Genesis 30, I mean 29, 31 to 35, and let's just read what Leah says. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, that she, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. So he, she named him Levi. But check out this last one. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Leah lived in the shadow of her beautiful younger sister, Rachel. Even though her father tricked Jacob into marrying her, she clung to him in the hopes that Jacob would just love her. But you can see the progression of her hopes. They were dashed to the ground until she had, all she had left was praising the Lord. I wonder if this Samaritan woman may have had the same issue. But for her, she may have found a way out. She maneuvered her way into a better position, potentially, where Leah couldn't. Now, whatever her actual situation, going back to the Samaritan woman, just let's make sure we understand that's not John's focus. What Jesus offers her in response to her thirst, that's John's focus. A way to satisfy her deepest longing in a relationship with God. So let me get real. Because some who are new to Gateway might think that we have, have it all together. Because we live in the richest county in the country. We've got this pretty little building. And we dress up pretty good on Sundays, don't we? But let me just bemuse you of that thought. Because all of us are, that are here are just as broken and thirsty as the Samaritan woman. Our individual past lives were messy. For crying out loud, some of our current lives are messy. There are people who have been divorced. There are people in the midst of divorce. There are marriages that are struggling. There are people who have sorted past right in our own church and have not yet taken up Jesus on his offer. Now, for those of us who have, we don't walk around with a sense of living, I mean, a, a sense of having it all together. We recognize that, if we, that we must keep coming back and taking from that well. Because if we don't, we will destroy ourselves. We don't have it all together. But the one thing we do know is that Jesus 
is holding us together. Amen? Now, we get real about our lives because we can't hide anything from Jesus. He sees into our souls and offers us refreshing water. This is what allows us to be honest and real about our past, regardless of how sordid it may be. We call this authentic Christian community. Your past is only an account of what your life was before Jesus. But I am indebted to the Apostle Paul for helping me see what it looks like with a life with Jesus. So let's turn to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15. I want you to hear what Paul says here. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, I used to marvel at the fact that Paul would say this about himself because of all the things that he would did to help build God's kingdom. And I thought to myself, how could he make this statement? Is he being humble? But the answer to that is actually, no, he's not. Let's read this verse in its broader context. Starting from verse 12, it reads this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was a, once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that we that are in Christ Jesus. And there's our verse. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But look at verse 16. I love this. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display, display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Can you see what Paul is doing in this context? He's not being humble. He's being real. He's being real because he's factoring in his past and how Jesus moved him beyond it. Please look at verse 13. If you're unfamiliar with Paul's story, he was a dangerous individual. He was not merely a violent man. He hunted down God's people, and he, with the full purpose of jailing them and killing some. But despite his past, he was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now you see how verse 15 fits, right? But he's not done. Verse 16, he was shown mercy because he was such a sinner so that he would become an example for anyone willing to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. That is what Jesus is offering this woman at the well. That's what he is offering for all of us. You know, this was a hard truth for my friend to swallow. Despite this truth, he wanted to believe it, but it was hard. Maybe some of you are there as well. So let me do for you what I did for him. I pointed him to Paul once again. And let's have a close look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. 
Look at the note, look at the underlying parts of that verse. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I said that to him thinking that he would get it. But when he looked at me after I quoted that verse, blank, blanks there. I thought maybe an illustration might help. So let me use the illustration for him, that I, I mean with you what I use for him. Any track and field fans here? None, okay, I'm the only one. That's okay. I, I like running track because I myself ran track. My wife ran track. Both our mothers ran track, okay? And guess what? Our daughters ran track. And it was great watching them. There was only one person that we enjoyed watching just as much, maybe a little bit more, than our own daughters. Jamaica's first son, Usain Bolt. We have never seen a man that stood that tall, six foot five, and moved that fast. He was ridiculously fast. Let's call Usain sin. My sin, your sin, everybody's sin. And let's line him up against the grace of God. Runners, take your mark. The gun goes off. The grace of God shoots down the track. What doesn't stay there? It blows down the track, past the, the stadium. It goes through all of known, the known galaxy. And it does that an infinite amount of times. And you know where Usain is? He hasn't taken his first step. I said to my friends, you cannot out the grace of God. The grace of God is going to envelop your sin, and then the blood of Jesus is going to wipe it all away. Amen? Then, at that point, I began to see, it began to dawn on him. If you've already accepted his offer, Jesus' offer, you are good. And that's what I told him. If you haven't, then his offer still stands. The question is, will you accept it? Does the Samaritan woman accept it? Well, let's get back to that text and see. Verses 19 to 26, she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the fathers seek. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, I've always found the woman's reaction to Jesus after this whole husband conversation, I've always found that interesting. She clearly recognizes that Jesus is different. He tells her things about her life that she did not reveal. She rightly deduces that he is a prophet. But then she turns to the topic of religion and which mountain you should worship God on. Was she being cheeky 
Or was she trying to put it all together? To be honest, I really don't know what she was doing. But I do know what Jesus was doing. Because what he was doing was bit by bit decoupling from her everything, every impediment that was keeping her from seeing Jesus. So she started out with this long-standing conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus didn't bother with that. He made it clear that he stood above that conflict and he had an incredible offer for her. Are you going to accept it? She then asked, are you greater than Jacob? Jacob can't offer you the things that I'm offering you. His is not going to satisfy. But mine can. Will you accept my offer? And when she tried to accept his offer on, his, on her own terms, he got real with her. And then, after going through that husband conversation, he asked, well, how do you feel me now? Are you going to accept me? And now, and now, she tries to turn to this whole place of worship. It's actually a decent question, though, because it's connected. Well, it's decent, but it's connected to the past. Contrary to Jewish perceptions, the Samaritans were very familiar with the books of Moses. In fact, their Bible didn't include anything but the first five books of Moses. They knew Moses spoke of a prophet like him that would come and lead them. So her perception that Jesus was a prophet was not a small thing. Mount Gerizim, the mountain that she's most likely referring to, had a significant history for the Samaritans. But for Jesus, the argument is still tied to the past. Worship of God has nothing to do with location. It's all about orientation. Because when you're properly oriented to God, it doesn't matter where you worship. Jesus was not being cruel when he told her that they, the Samaritans didn't know what they were worshiping. He was actually speaking the truth. They had a long and horrific history of idolatry and syncretism. The Jews, while marginally better, they were, in Jerusalem, was the official place of worship, at least for a while. But with Jesus' arrival, a new way to worship is dawned. Those who worship God must worship him empowered by his spirit, the living water, and according the way he wants the truth. Now, Jesus strikes another chord with her because she recognized that what he is saying sounds like who Moses spoke of. She knew that when the Messiah comes, he would explain everything. And in a very rare instance, Jesus reveals and declares that he is actually the Messiah. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. In the last verses that we have, 27 through 30, it says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asks, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything ever I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Just as she was finishing up her conversation with Jesus, she's, the disciples come and she does something very interesting. Now, it could be just my sanctified imagination, but you read that part in verse 28 when she says, it says she's leaving her water jar? I wonder, in that action, did she take Jesus, Jesus up on his offer? She had gone out there to try and quench that thirst that doesn't satisfy, 
And after speaking to Jesus, she leaves it there. You know what she found, potentially? She found release. She found release from her past. Because Jesus was offering her something so much better. That's what my friend finally found. After 45 minutes of talking to this guy, he would name these things I kept saying, all I kept saying, repeating over and over for 45 minutes. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. Oh, that one? Uh, you're good. He finally stopped asking. But because he stopped asking, it didn't mean that he got it. So we ended that Bible study. A couple of weeks later, he gives me a call. He says, Dean, that study was life-changing. And I asked him, well, why? I finally let go. He found release. Well, today, if you're dealing with guilt or shame from your past, we want to help you find release. There are going to be some people in the back ready to pray for you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and minister to us. And what I'd love for us is for those who are needing this, no shame, no guilt, I want you to find your way to the back and get the prayer that you might need. For the rest of us, if life is okay, and I know that's not true, but it's okay, I will give you a pass, okay? If life is okay, I'll ask that you bow your heads, close your eyes, and give reverence to this hour so that the Lord who's leading this might minister to those who may need it. So with eyes closed, heads bowed, let us give reverence to this hour. I would lead us into this right before the worship team ministers. So, Father, we're grateful for this opportunity. We see your Son, the Lord Jesus, at work. And what a great work it is that he does. Because he doesn't limit it to this woman. It's his ongoing work. Because he's given to us, because of your great plan, this spring of living water. And for those of us who have accepted that offer, we know the beauty and the satisfaction this great gift but there are those here today that have not yet known it they carry around the shame and the guilt of their past it's like an anchor to their soul I pray Lord God that you would help them find this release allow nothing to stop them may they get up of their own accord find this release that you are is open for anyone who'd like to receive prayer our deacons and elders feel free to grab this time to 
be prayed over for the rest of us. Let's just spend this in some quiet, in some stillness. We'll go in and out of singing this song and you can join with us when we do. But otherwise, just take this as a moment to escape from the busyness and the distractions of life outside these walls. Appreciate the, the stillness of this moment. Listen for the Lord and what he may be trying to say to you. us out in prayer. For some of you, there's work that still needs to be done. 
So for those of us who are uh, done today, but not done with this work, I'll ask that you to continue to reverence this time. There'll be people praying in the back, so please, as you leave, show the respect that's, that this time requires. But let me pray, and then I'll usher us out. Once again, Father, we thank you so much. Lord Jesus, because of what you've done, the work is finished. And the power that you've released in us, we have in the presence of your Holy Spirit. Help us to put in perspective our past. That first step is letting go of some of the things that cause shame and guilt. And release us into the newness of life that you've promised. That we too, like Paul, would be examples for other sinners to show just how patient you are with us. <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. I leave you with this. Go in peace. Thank you.